Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today is Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent. Down the line from Frankfurt, we have James Schotter, our German financial correspondent. And also our guest this week is Andrea Enria, who's chairman of the European Banking Authority. That's the EU watchdog. This week, we'll be talking about Deutsche's latest legal settlement. Also a look at Goldman Sachs and its position on Donald Trump's latest reforms. And finally, the EBA's plans for creating a massive bad bank in Europe. First, though, to Deutsche Bank. And James, you're on the line to tell us the details of what Deutsche has done. They've been in many legacy litigation issues with regulators and public authorities around the world. This one, not as expensive as some, but it's several hundred million euros again over a Russian row. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. Basically, what's happened today is that Deutsche has agreed settlements with two authorities, the Department of Financial Services in New York and the Financial Conduct Authority in Britain, over allegations that it was used by clients to siphon about $10 billion worth of money out of Russia. Deutsche has paid $630 million in total, $425 million to the DFS, and £163 million pounds, or $204 million to the FCA. That is certainly lower than some of its previous settlements and lower than some people had feared that it might have to pay for this particular matter. But as one of Deutsche's senior managers said in the note to staff this morning, they can't yet say that the matter is closed because there are other regulators, notably the US Department of Justice, who are still looking into this matter. So it may well be that there's potential for further financial pain from this. So, James, tell us how these transactions worked, the so-called mirror trades. What exactly happened? These were trades that involved a Russian client buying liquid Russian securities from Deutsche Bank's Moscow office and paying for these in rubles at the same time or you know, close to the same time that another counterparty sold the same number of shares or same number of securities to Deutsche's office in London in exchange for dollars. And you know, these counterparties in many cases had links between each other. And so the effect was that rubles had been exchanged for dollars and had been shifted out of Russia. And there was a short circuiting of sanctions thereby? Or what was the purpose of this? An anti-money laundering investigation. OK, let me bring Laura in here because clearly, although it's not entirely finished, as you say, the US Department of Justice still has to settle with Deutsche over this. It is another big thing out of the way for John Cryan, Deutsche's beleaguered chief executive. And it arguably clears the way for them to start thinking about the future, start having some kind of clear strategy and potentially, Laura, go to the market and ask for money and a rights issue to shore up their capital. I think that's maybe getting slightly ahead of things here. I mean, when you think about what's actually happened today, yes, they have agreed to pay these fines. The fines total about $600 million between the two of them. However, the DOJ fine, I would expect to be a far higher amount. So the DOJ fine is a big material thing. 
So I would be quite surprised to see the bank coming to market before they have a better handle on what that DOJ fine is going to be. Now we do have Deutsche coming out with its end of year results this Thursday so they may give us some more clarity both around the quantum and the timing of the fine from the DOJ then. But certainly I think it will be quite premature of them to come to market before they have their arms around that in a bit more detail. Okay, well thanks both for that. Let's move on to our second topic and staying with you, Laura. Goldman Sachs and some of the other big US financial institutions have responded to Donald Trump's rather controversial policies on immigration and keeping out essentially many of the nationals from seven predominantly Muslim nations in the Middle East. Laura, I mentioned Goldman Sachs particularly because their chief executive, Lloyd Blankfein, has been the most outspoken in what he said. Yeah, I mean, I would probably put himself on the chief executive of Citigroup, Mike Corbett, as being similarly outspoken, albeit that Mike's comments came later in the day. So early in the day, we had the chief executive from Goldman Sachs coming out very clearly and saying this policy is not a policy we are able to support. And he then outlined concerns about it. Then in the evening, we had the CEO of Citigroup coming out and saying that basically he was concerned about the message which the executive order sends but also that he was concerned about the impact of the order on both Citi's ability to serve its clients and also on Citi's ability to actually contribute to economic growth. So they're both very critical. They both see some very big negative consequences for this and they have come out publicly. We do now have two very senior banking leaders out. They weren't the fastest out. We did see things earlier from people from Amazon, Google, some of those other companies do seem to have moved faster. It took longer for the banks to come out against this. And I guess the banks are a bit conflicted. I mean, any bankers you talk to, they're very against this policy. They're also very cognizant that Trump overall has been good for banking. They don't want to risk ruining the goodwill that he appears to have towards them. Banks have enjoyed a remarkable rally since he's come into office and even earlier than that since he was first elected. So I think they know he seems to be quite a volatile man and they don't really want to be on his watch list and they don't want to do anything which could undo some of the good that they hope he will do for their industry. But Blankfein's comments in particular are interesting, aren't they? Because Goldman has got an even more vested, I suppose, in this president, given that several of his appointees are ex-Goldman people, not least Gary Cohn, the former number two at Goldman, who's now in a senior job in the Trump administration. Yeah, I mean, Goldman obviously does have very tight links to the overall Trump administration, but you have to remember finance is a very international industry. In New York, there was some research done about a year and a half ago. It found that immigrants made up about 37% of all workers in finance in New York. So a lot of their colleagues will be these international people. And while they may not, I mean, most of them won't come from those seven affected countries, they will know people who do. This is something which is going to personally offend a lot of both Goldman's staff and also Goldman's clients. So I think they can't afford to be too quiet on that, albeit they are very much aligned with the overall economic policies for the administration. Okay, it's definitely one to watch. Finally, let us talk about this idea that's come out from Andrea Enria, the chairman of the European Banking Authority, for the creation of a giant bad bank in Europe, a publicly administered toxic asset bank, which would take all of the bad debts essentially from the European banking system and help clean it up to enable it to be more effective. At least I think that's the idea. We're joined now by Mr Enria. Thanks very much for joining us, Andrea. Tell us, you think Europe should create this giant bad bank to process these toxic loans. How exactly would that help? Well, indeed, we have a large program, one trillion on performing loans. And what we see is that uh, although the situation is improving, it is moving too slowly. If we didn't take any action and we continue this pace, 
Europe would reach the pre-crisis level of non-performing loans much later than Japan did in the 90s. So everybody was talking about the lost decade there. So we need to take action. In general, the experience shows that in all countries where this problem has been tackled effectively and at good speed, have used asset management companies to deal with it. So in my view, without an asset management company that creates sufficient mass and manages to crowd in private investors and to make the secondary market for non-performing loans more efficient, the problem would be much slower to deal with. So I think that an asset management company would definitely help. We could have a European blueprint for an asset management company. We now have a number of asset management companies in different countries. We've had one in Spain, one in Ireland, now one in Hungary. So having a common framework that tries to take the best practices in this area would already be a step forward. Having a, a new wide asset company would be even better, in my view, in creating a large mass of non-performing loans and managing them effectively and moving forward in addressing the problem in a faster way. And is there political support for this kind of idea? Well, the key point, especially when you talk about a European initiative, a European asset management company, the key point in the political discussions is who's going to bear any possible losses here. And we have been very careful in trying to craft our proposals in such a way that even a European asset management company would not imply any mutualization. So there would be no sharing of risks. And also, uh, it would be compatible with the current rules of the Bank Recovery and Resolution Directive and rules on state aid. So eventually, shareholders would not be protected. It's not an old-style bailout of banks. And eventually, if there are losses, if the assets are, are sold at a price below the transfer price, let's say there would be a mechanism allowing the asset management company to recover the losses from the member state that is uh, providing the guarantee to the bank. So this would provide sufficient coverage of the key political problems in moving into that direction. And so uh, I look forward to see what will be the reaction of interested parties, but I hope that there will be support because the issue of mutualization is addressed in an effective way. So there will be no mutualization and no actual losses on the asset management company. And Andrea, do the banks have the necessary capital to support the kind of losses that would come from crystallising the value of these bad debts on their books? Well, in our idea, the banks would transfer these non-performing loans at the real economic value. So basically, if this real economic value, which could be calculated, the state aid procedures already envisage ways of calculating the real economic value. If this real economic value is below the book value for the banks, there will be indeed a loss for the banks and there will be a need for capital to shelter these losses. Now, banks have already improved their capital position significantly, so I think there is sufficient capacity for the banks to take this capital hit. And if there is not capacity, well, they would need to face reality and eventually move to a situation in which they are either supported in, in repairing their situation or eventually put into resolution if they are unable to deal with the losses that they have to face. Finally, Andrea, you're an Italian, a former official at Italy's Central Bank. To what extent is this topic predominantly an Italian problem? Well, it is indeed. I mean, as I say, there is one trillion non-performing loans and one quarter approximately is in Italy, is Italian. So the problem is large, but it is concentrated in some countries, in Italy and in other countries like Greece, Cyprus, Romania, Bulgaria, Croatia, Hungary, Portugal, Ireland to a large extent. 
Now, does this mean that this is not a European problem? I think it is indeed a European problem. First of all, because of the sheer size. Second, because a lot of these non-performing loans are held by banks on a cross-border basis, so there is this channel for contagion as well. Third, this volume of non-performing loans is impairing the functioning of monetary policy, the lending channel. So is keeping lending growth low and is clogging the balance sheets of banks, impeding them to support the recovery. So I think that all in all, this makes the problem European in scale, and I think that we need to find the European solution for these problems. Well, thanks very much, Andrea, for joining us. That was Andrea Enria, Chairman of the European Banking Authority. Well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Laura here in the studio, James in Frankfurt, and Andrea Enria, our guest from the EBA. Thank you also for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.